All right, everyone, we are back once again for another episode of the Chatterbox Video Game Radio Show. I am Alon. And my name is Ara. And uh, so it's been a couple weeks, as as is the way we do things around here now. Yeah, it and, feels um, like it's been forever. Yeah, I've actually had uh, had a few sessions in with Titanfall, which makes me feel good. These days, unfortunately, I don't, I just don't get to play games much at all. And when I do, they can be interrupted by a whining baby who doesn't want to sit quietly in his swing. Look, that just means that you're playing entirely different games now. Well, one day, maybe. Right now, it's you don't know how boring and annoying a new a newborn baby is you're they, right i don't they're cute as all hell right and you just want to like touch them and kiss them and stuff but like they you can't play with them because they're not they're just not there yet they're not ready to play with yeah i watched some like helpful raising a kid video uh, with some pediatrician who referred to the first three months of a baby's life as the fourth trimester which seems a little paradoxical to me, but, okay. but still, basically their brains are growing and whatever. So like, wow, they are boring unless you really can just suck up the cuteness. But I just like, I want to hold him like when I get home from work, right? Like, oh, how's my boy doing? And I, you know, talk to him for a little bit. And of course he doesn't talk back because he can't, although yeah. he's kind of starting to vocalize right now. Um, but like, you know, three minutes in, I just want to put him down and get on with my life. And uh, it can't really that do is, that. That is a character. That is why um, the female body comes loaded with all kinds of special hormones, so that they like the baby more than you do. Yeah, that's totally true. There's all sorts of but like releases of oxytocin hand, and things. Yeah, some listeners might argue against um, that chilling thought yeah, that no, there could be such a thing. No, it's totally true. You, got, you know what? Um, you just reminded me of. No. Do you I don't. know why babies are cute? Um, so that dads don't drop them. Uh, well, basically, yeah. The uh, the more um, wild America version is uh, so that dads don't kill them. Yeah. What what I've heard is that as babies. Like early, early on, newborns uh, tend to look more like the father, so that you can identify uh, now that's who the really father is. I have not heard that one. Yeah, you pretty much know who the mother is. Um, anyway, my baby, however, does not look like me even a little bit, and never has. Um, I don't think he looks like anybody, but I don't look like I did when I was a baby either. You know, puberty hit, and my head stretched out, and everything changed, and I just assume the same thing will happen to him. Yeah, but um, you know what? You may take some solace in knowing that um, you look very much like a uh, championship, um, let's see, Serbian uh, tennis player. Uh, which which tennis player is that? Uh, he, I don't know. He's Serbian, and he looks just like you, and his oh. head is almost as long as yours. <laughs> Why the long face? Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. So moving on a bit. From baby woes, I did get to play some Titanfall, and that was cool. And I don't, uh, I don't think I have too much more to talk about, except there is one interesting point where you know how I've talked about with Titanfall how you do this regeneration thing, and there's all these challenges you have to get through, and that's kind of what has kept me interested in the game. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. So 
Um, usually by the time I get to the point that I could regenerate, like you get up to the high enough level, I have completed all the challenges or very close, right? A couple more matches and I can finish the last challenge and then regenerate. Um, but right now I'm at generation eight. And one of the things you have to do as a gen eight, uh, in order to go to gen nine, wait, is this like the prestige type thing? Yeah, it's prestiging. They just don't call it prestiging okay. in this game. All right, now I'm on your wavelength. Yeah, so in order to go to Gen 9 from 8, you have to be on the winning team for 100 matches. And I was done with all of my things, like all of the the challenges I needed, except for that one, when I was at like 48 matches. So I have to play twice as long. And that's a really long time, by the way, because... I played over 100 matches just to get to 48 wins. So now to get to 100 wins is going to be more. But here's the thing. Um, It means that I'm finally to the point where I'm playing the game to play the game instead of just going to the challenges. Because that aspect was you've completely exhausted? Yeah. I mean, now my only goal is to be on the winning team. Now, I have taken it upon myself to give to do some other challenges like unlock weapons I hadn't unlocked and whatever in this particular generation. But that aside, um, really I'm focusing on, on winning the match, which in reality should be my motivating factor, you know, during any match the whole time I play. Right. I would normally suspect so. Right. That's what you want to do. You want to win. And I've pointed this out in the past that uh, having these challenges has actually taken me away from the primary goal of the game because I'm focused on those rather than, you know, winning the match with my team. So in one way that kind of hurts the spirit of the game because it takes people away from, you know, the rest of their team. And when you're playing online by yourself, you know, presumably the other people on the team have the goal of winning as well. Uh, except you, except you're this one guy. Suddenly it's like, because you've dropped out, they have one less player because you're not really paying attention to the game. Um, but anyway, now I'm at the point where I am paying attention to it and I am kind of enjoying myself. And I think, I don't know if it's because I'm better just because I've been playing it for longer now, because I'm still not good at all. I'm by no means good, um, but I am enjoying it more. And uh, I don't know, it's because I have the more freedom to like pick the gun that I want and actually try to get points and win the game. So I've I found that that interesting. First of all, that it the challenges took me away, and now this one particular challenge is really making me dive deeper into the game. So, so I, I want to ask you about that. Do you say that the game is more fun now, or was it more fun before? Um, I think before. And it's not like, like I'm going to go back to this when I get to Gen 9. I'm going to have more challenges to do. But um, Are you sure? Are you sure they're not going to put up a screen and say you've played this game too much, we give up? Yes, I'm certain of it. That, by the way, Gen 9 is – there's a challenge in there that I'm never going to be able to finish. It's crazy. Oh, so you, you already know what's going to come up. I don't know all of them, but I know that one of them is be the MVP on your team 50 times. And I think I've been the MVP on my team a total of like five times. Okay, so you know, just do it ten times more. No well, problem. if you're if you're not if you're not good at this game, being the, I mean, you have to be the wing, winningest player on the team. And in fact, I do play with a few people, um, you know, the, a, one group of people repeatedly, and it's uh, 
the brother of a friend of mine was saying like he learned the best way to get the MVP is to actually make it more likely that you're going to lose. Right. And by that, he means play uh, basically so badly that the other people in your team drop out or that you play on like a team of just one or two. People. Wow. That's tactical. <laughs> yeah. So you might be like, uh, a, you might be playing oddly against a team of six versus two, but if you're on the team of two, then you have a good chance of being the best of that team. So, well, wait a minute. So the only way you can be MVP by playing horribly is to encourage everyone else on your team to leave. And then pretty, you're MVP by default. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just hope that they bail. Um, so that's that, one. you know, I mean, that's, you should get points for just coming up with that idea. That's amazing. Well, I didn't come up with it, but well, yeah, whoever came up, with it. <laughs> it's one way to do it. So anyway, I'm never going to, going to finish gen nine. It's just not possible for me. Um, well, they know but, you, they have to come up with like, um, not just increasingly harder things, but like exponentially harder things. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, maybe once I have a, this greater focus on the game, then I could, be MVP, but I don't know. One, I got to tell you, I've been doing better lately a little bit because there was a long period of time when everyone I'd play against was really good. But now that a new Call of Duty game has come out, um, and maybe other people, more people have gotten the Xbox One, I don't really know what the answer is. But um, it seems to me that when I do play, I'm playing against less experienced players. And you can tell by what generation they are, well, for the most part. Um, you can you can gauge it off of that and so i've been playing against inexperienced people and i'm i'm assuming it's for a number of reasons i assume first of all because call of duty has come out and so the really experienced players have moved on to the other game also expansion packs have come out and because i did not purchase the expansion packs (laughs) when when i play so there's all these different modes of game right you know capture the flag and attrition and whatever hard point domination there's there's a few different game modes but you can play variety pack which is where you play all different game modes and they just rotate through. Well, they don't really rotate, but they randomize through the game modes and through the maps. But there's another one called, I don't know, DLC all has names, right? The whatever DLC. So they have like the whatever variety pack. So if you have that DLC, you can play that variety pack. My point being that since I haven't purchased it, uh, I can't play the new maps. And I figure the people who are really hardcore into the game have purchased the new maps Probably. and are, are playing the game modes that include those maps. So because I didn't buy it, I'm playing with mostly new people who have just gotten the game, but not the DLC. Yeah. But doesn't that make you feel so much more like a badass? Uh, just that I'm not as bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. So okay. there's, I could, I can theorize about why it is that I'm playing against less experienced players, but I'm guessing it's because of the DLC, because of call of duty, and maybe just more people have the game now because more people are buying the Xbox One since well, the, con- the Connectless version came out. Since you admitted that you're bad at the game, do you oh, think, horrible! I'm horrible. Do you think that what it's actually doing is um, basically like using metrics about how good you are that are that is not related to your experience playing the game? And well, you can fill in the, the dots. Um. I don't really know how they decide to who, who to match you up with, but I assume that it is heavily reliant upon the generation you are. So like a Gen 10 level 50 isn't going to be p- 
pitted against someone who's a level one. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Maybe they don't look at that. Maybe they look at um, what are some other metric that's not visible to you. you know? Yeah, and they certainly could. I mean, they they definitely have a lot of stats on the game. You know, they can see how many matches you've won. Obviously, they can tell how many hours you've played. They could take into account a lot of things. And that's one thing I thought about too, because some people just sit on Gen One and never regenerate because there's there's really no reason to. Well. They've recently introduced a change that gives a little bit of reason, but it's incredibly minor. Um, So a lot of people just stick on Gen 1, level 50. They have all their guns and whatever, and it looks like they're not experienced because they're still Gen 1. Um, Mm. So I I would assume that they take into account something else, like hours played um, or maybe matches won, but... Actually, actually, now that you've said that, right? So you're saying like you can wait indefinitely at the end of each generation to do the move on to the next one. Yeah, you don't have to move on. It's a choice. So so that actually means, right, like the the number of generations you have is not a reliable indicator at all about like how many Mm -hmm. matches the person has played. Correct. With the exception of level one prior to being level 50. If you haven't gotten to the point that you could even regen (laughs) once, then you know that they're an early player. Fair enough. (laughs) other than that, they could be anywhere because they could have waited on level one, you know, 50 uh, for as long as, as they wanted. And some of the people I play with do that. Like our friend Johnny, he's yeah. just level one. He's never never regened. So I want to uh, say a couple more things about um, what you said at the beginning about Titanfall. This is a, a really interesting progression that... It's interesting because it sounds like what they did was basically the first uh, portion of the progression you described is reliant completely upon extrinsic rewards. In other words, right, like you get the gold star or something like related to or unrelated to the actual like direct activity of playing the game. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's but- definitely true. Yeah, but now, like, your your Gen 8 or 9 or whatever it is, the one where you have to be the uh, on the winning team and then later, right, like, MVP a whole bunch of times. Yeah. Well, those are totally intrinsically motivated types of things. Even though it's kind of ex- – it has an extrinsic component because you're still getting that, like, number increment because of it, um, the activity itself is – really intrinsic so i'm i get the feeling right that like basically in the beginning or relatively speaking the beginning right like it's like you were playing the game to just fulfill these weird requirements but now you're playing the game for its own sake right yes yeah, now that's on, it's, it's really interesting actually how they decided to do it that way that you know is a, a measure of the player's motivation right or at least an explanation of their motivation but at the same time there's also value in that because what it's done is, you know, every generation, it's like you basically have to master a certain weapon. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, master is the wrong word, but it's like, you know, get so many kills with this gun, um, that sort of thing. And it's it's a kind of a high number. So um, it's basically training you as you go through all the generations to be good with all of the weapons. And that is so smart. Yeah. That is absolutely. It's genius. great. So now I have experience with, with all of them instead of just you know, sticking to that one that I tried first and kind of like or whatever. So um, I do, I definitely like that they did that because otherwise, like I remember when I was first introduced to, for instance, the uh, the satchel grenade, which is basically just a, a proximity mine that you can, well, no, it's not a proximity mine. It's a, uh, a detonatable 
mine, right? So you throw it. Yeah, it comes with a free satchel. Pretty much. So you throw it and you can blow it up whenever you want. Um, I did not like that weapon at all. And then I was forced to use it and get a number of kills with it. And it taught me to really like it. So now it's my favorite of the grenade style weapons. Um, <clears throat> and I, I would not have felt that way at all if I wasn't forced to use it for for quite a while. Um, so it, it really changes, at least for me, it did. It, it changed my approach to the game and my appreciation of the various weapons in the game. Wow. You just reminded me of something uh, really lengthy I want to talk about. Okay. <laughs> are, are we prepared for me to talk about this until we have to break? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got, we've got another 10 minutes or so, so we can go for a while. Okay. And um, yeah, and then I, I want to get into a few things after the break. So that's good. Yeah, okay. So I'm so glad I thought of this. Um, there's been something on my mind. I forgot about it completely before the show, but now it came up again. And um, I've been thinking a lot about how they sell games, you know, lately compared to how they used to traditionally. In other words, like free-to-play versus the regular retail channel, you know, in the 80s and 90s and maybe 2000s, you know. So... Remember how we were talking about that EDAR report a while back where it basically said, oh, look, it, demos don't – like demos don't improve your sales of a game. They might actually hurt them. Yeah, I remember that. And it's like it – they concluded and you know, I feel like a lot of other people from, from reading that material erroneously concluded that a demo – hurts sales, um, surprisingly enough, or it's counterintuitively enough. So what I said back then um, was basically that it's – right. I think their mistake of the conclusion wasn't that a demo is intrinsically bad. It's just that it so happened to be that 99% of all demos made were done so in a way that it provides the player with a horrible introduction to the game and it doesn't do it in a way that sells the game enough for them to want to play it. And that's why, right? It's like it only gives people reasons not to play when it's done poorly. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. Unfortunately, it's kind of subjective determining if a demo is good or bad. Well, I mean, it's not any more or less subjective than whether the game itself is good or bad. Agreed. That made me think about, how the interesting thing is that the free-to-play structure, okay, uh, strictly speaking, I'm not, I don't mean, I'm not including all of the bad baggage that comes with free-to-play, like coercive monetization, you know? You don't have to have coercive or deceptive monetization for it to be free-to-play. Those things just have come for the ride frequently enough that people attach those things to free-to-play. But there's nothing intrinsically required to attach those things to the free-to-play concept. So in that way, right, a demo is basically kind of like a free-to-play type of thing. It's just slightly differently structured. But fundamentally, right, both of these things are you get to try before you buy. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So here's the funny thing I realized. Well, Remember back when we were kids and like in high school or something, right? Like Super Nintendo, Genesis, Nintendo before that. I mean, that was that um, was more uh, elementary and and junior high, but yeah, yeah, and maybe you know just 
any time before we got to any, all this crazy online stuff, just a traditional way that we bought console games was that they were, you know, give or take, they were about 50 bucks if you wanted, you know, the hot new one. I mean, if you wanted the hot new one, sometimes they were 60, 70, and, you know, for like some N64 games or Super Nintendo games, they were even like 70 or $80. But anyway, um, it was for people like us, uh, a big expense. It's actually still, I mean, a big expense, all things considered, right? I mean, who would <laughs> who would pay $60 for a software, much less a game these days, right? Yeah. So... Except everybody buying all the games. <laughs> yeah. So something happened back then that I'm, I'm not hearing anybody talk about, and I'm going to break it down. This is what I think happened um, far more frequently than I think a lot of people appreciate. So a lot of the games back then were characteristically obtuse. Would you agree? Well, I, I don't know exactly what you mean. Well, I mean, like, they have, like, really hard learning curves. They're not very accessible. You know, you'd have to practice the game a lot to get into them. You know, it's not like... Uh, this is... I'm talk, I'm basically referring to how everybody considers those games of yesteryear to be much harder than games these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was sort of, that's the general feel, although I think there's a lot of games that weren't like that. But Yeah, but, I mean, generally speaking... Yeah, I'll give you that. They challenged you a lot more. They, they were less accessible than the games today. And actually, they were a lot deeper, you could argue, arguably. A lot of the games were incredibly deep, but they didn't do much for accessibility. Yeah. And a lot of today's games are super duper accessible and not so deep. So here's the fascinating part. And I'm probably even going to run over on this. But so you can tell me this. I'm going to describe to you what happened to me innumerable times as a kid and a teenager and a young adult buying games myself. Uh, you can tell me if you've experienced this, if you agree or not, if this is a frequent thing that happened. A lot of times what would happen to me was I'd buy a game, right? And so because there's no demos, you didn't really know what it was like unless you've actually played it before. Because there was no returning of games, once you bought a game that you thought was going to be really good, then you're stuck with it. And, I, you know, countless is probably exaggerating, but many, many times what happened to me, and I saw this happen to my friends too, and I want to hear your perspective on this on. I would get a game, and I'm like, wow, I spent 50 bucks, 60 whatever, and this game is such a pile. This is horrible. I hate this game. But guess what? I can't return it, so, you know, and it's the only other game I have that's new, so I'm just going to keep playing it. And something happened because I couldn't return it. The thing that happened was I stuck with it, and I kept playing it, and eventually I surmounted this hump of unpleasantness where after a point I got good enough at the game that it was actually much more fun to play than the first few times. So that didn't really happen to me. In fact, I did have the option of returning games just because back in the day, Electronics Boutique and the other game retailers around there would allow you to buy a brand new game and bring it back within a week if you didn't like it. Yeah, really? which is crazy. 
I don't know why they let's, ever did let's that. Let's not count that part. What about the part where – but that like stopped at some point. Didn't yeah, it? but it was like later in life when I had more money <laughs> and, uh, and didn't okay. value it as much. So that didn't really happen to me much. And I got to say, even if I had a game that I didn't like, like that wasn't available back in the NES days. When we bought a game back then from like KB Toys or whatever, you definitely were stuck with it. And yeah. I guess I would play the games a little bit more if I, even if I didn't like it, except I, I never, I don't think I would stick with it the, you know, the whole way through, even if it was crap, um, or enough to just get better at it and appreciate it more. So, so what would you, you mean like if you did, if you just bought a new game and you didn't like it, you would just stop playing it right away? I mean, I, I think I would certainly give it more, more chance than I would these days. But I think that your experience is representative of your tenacity, and I, I don't <laughs> think that I'm the same way. I would have given up earlier. Okay. That's fair enough. Uh, so I'll, I'll explain the other side of this. Uh, it looks like we're coming up on the break. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, so we'll hold off, go to break, and then, and then you can explain a little bit more. We'll be right back. It's part two this uh, two-week period Chatterbox video game radio. Feels good, right? Get a little rest. Come back when it's time. Well, energized. Stories you know, blazing. You know, when I had to see you or talk to you every effing week, I was getting really tired of you. But now that we have to wait two weeks before talking to each other, I kind of miss you a little bit. Oh, it's like heaven. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All so, right. anyway, so you were explaining. Yeah, that... getting back to my thing. Um, yeah. Okay, actually, I want to I want to I want to explain a little anecdote um, before I, I move on to what my point or thesis is about this whole um, exhibition I'm doing here. So, yeah, I remember there was one time. Well, wow, there's a lot of different things. You know, I would get some. What was like a really section Z? Remember that game? Oh my god, I had that game. Yeah. That was the game where, you know, where you played it and, you know, maybe you would like never ever get past like the third or fourth area. And Yeah, dude, that game was rough. Yeah, that game was like if the entire content of the game was 100%, I think most people never saw more than the first 1%. You think so? I yeah, I'm pretty sure almost everybody just died in the first few areas. There's a lot. I mean, that game just went on and on and on. And that was one example of a game where I, I got initially and it was horrible. And it's still really, it's not good. It's not a good game. <laughs> and for some weird, I, I, I don't understand how I was able to do this. But I eventually was played it enough. That I was able to like get to bosses and find secret areas and really just like explore all these corners of the game that for 
a very long time, like maybe the first like six months I owned it, I completely am making this up, but it was a long time. I was like never gotten beyond that first like one or two percent and then just something clicked at some point and I was able to be like way more competent at the game than I ever was. So that was really interesting. Um, but the main the main thing that uh, I remember about this these sorts of things was there was a game that one of my friends got and it was on the Genesis and it was Budokan. I never played that. Budokan by Electronic Arts. And Budokan was a r- real special piece of trash. <laughs> I, I don't even know what kind of game it was. I assume it, it like, remember, like Samurai or something? Yeah, I remember like Yi-R Kung Fu. Sort of, yeah. So it was a one-on-one fighting game. You know, in the vein of Street Fighter, but before Street Fighter 2, I'm pretty sure. And at least before it came out on consoles. And the thing is, it was just the control was really stilted and and all the action in the game was very slow. And, you know, the animations just felt really long in the tooth. And it was just like, you, you know, you made a move and it took forever. And it was just not very responsive at all. And anyway, by all accounts and measures, it was a steaming pile. And I, I'm I'm sure one of the one of the people who worked on that game is very furious right now listening. But that's just that's what it was. And um, one of my friends bought it, right? And I and I noticed that he did something really mysterious when he bought it. He was like talking it up like crazy and i think what happened was that he it was it was such a dissonant thing for him to admit to himself that he made a horrible purchase and wasted fifty dollars so what he decided was that he was going to decide that this game was an awesome game and he was going to make it be an awesome game because he had invested so much into it that he just couldn't stomach the idea of him making a horrible decision to buy the game. Oh yeah, dude, that that happens a lot. I've made that observation in the past yeah. uh, for sure that people will um, change their outlook in order to make themselves not feel bad about a, a past decision. Yes, and that that's one of the reasons why. So this is this is really okay. This is really deep because that's one of the reasons why people would stick with the game when they wouldn't tolerate it otherwise. And the second reason is that the high price of the game is compatible and facilitates this type of behavior because the more investment you put in, right, the harder it's going to be for you to admit to yourself that that was a bad decision. And thirdly, right, the whole fact that you couldn't return the game also complements this whole dynamic. Now, what's happened these days is that for the most part, well, I don't want to say for the most part, but for games that are like the free-to-play style games, which are becoming increasingly endemic now, here's the thing, right? You're not paying $50, you're not playing you're not paying anything. So the so people aren't going to stick with anything like before. And I I 
I feel like what happened in the early age of the video game industry was a complete fluke that all of these variables that I just described basically lined up to facilitate a lot of sales. You know, if the prices weren't high, then people wouldn't feel as compelled to um, justify what they did as right or correct or good, even though the game was garbage and they hated it. And if they could return their games freely, which, okay, I know Electronics Boutique apparently did that, but um, it was not my general experience in my childhood and early uh, adulthood that I could return any games, right? So all of these factors are like t- – this This is incredibly fascinating because these are all like – like nobody planned this, you know? Nobody said, okay, it's going to be this way and that way and this other way. But yet all these random factors combine to create a climate where – you can sell $50 games to people and they will eventually or at least they will convince themselves or or posture that they love them even if they don't sometimes. I, well, I mean sort of. On the whole, they would still be appreciated as crappy games. But, you know, there would be the... Well, yeah, if you're not the, the person... one who bought it, then it's, you're free to, you know... Yeah. You're free to say how much crap it is, just like I told my friend how much crap Budokan was. But don't forget, I mean, there were video game magazines back then, too, you know, talking about them. And they were, I think, perhaps more honest uh, than the purchaser, <laughs> the upset purchaser, right? Um, well, yeah, of course, so... right? Like, all those, I mean, all those things... Yeah, I, I don't think a bunch of crappy games were being sold. Like, not nearly as much as when the Wii came out and there was just shovelware being thrown on that system for 20 well, bucks left yeah. and right. I mean, it's hard to argue how much of this happened or how much of it didn't happen, but there was definitely that type of dynamic at work. And now the dynamic cannot be anymore, really, at least not with free-to-play stuff. So it's I just, not just free to play. It's also a greater sharing of information because of the internet. Yeah, there's that too, right? But that still doesn't stop people from confabulating <laughs> when they don't want to admit that they made a bad purchase. Yeah, now, for sure. Now, now instead they confabulate about not having spent thousands of dollars in their free to play game of choice. <laughs> Do you actually know anybody who's gotten that deep into it? Maybe yeah. not that deep, but just a very deep in yeah. a free-to-play game. I know somebody who's gotten over $3,000 deep. In a game? In a game that is um, – should not be a $3,000 game. Yeah. Dude, that's crazy. Like yeah, you could buy an entire arcade machine I know. I and fill it with lots of games. I know what you can do with $3,000. It's a lot of things. <laughs> this guy is also wow. not a person who you know $3,000 is like a lunch to. You know, so it's it's not like that. Wait, so you're saying he he's not a rich person? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And he spent three grand. Well, I mean, it was over a period of several months. <laughs> Still. I haven't spent three grand on video games in the last three uh, years. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's less dramatic, but, you know, there was that popular post on um, one of the Gawker blogs or whatever about how you know, this this girl accidentally spent around $265 on Candy Crush in a month, and she was egg-hassed at her behavior. Yeah. I mean, I guess some people have... That's the thing. That's why I was asking if you knew anyone in real life, 
Because yeah. I certainly don't. Yeah, I mean, it happens. maybe I do, but I haven't discussed it with those people. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't like to admit what they've done, you know, because it's it's just like, yeah, because the first thing you say is you just think about all the things you can buy with that amount of money and they're all better ideas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. So um, I wanted – I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm changing gears completely here. Yeah, let's do it. Um I was, I listened to a lot of podcasts, right? Just like people are listening to this one right now. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts and the ones that I, I seem to like the most tell interesting stories um, that are timeless, right? So a lot of time we will talk about current events, things that are going on in the gaming industry, but I think there's, we could be doing something else as well. That is interesting to our, our listeners. And I think I actually need to recruit our listeners in order to accomplish this. We could never do it between just you and I. Um, there are a lot of years in my history of playing video games. And in those years, there have been, you know, things have happened. There's nostalgic moments and events that I could talk about. Unfortunately, my memory is horrible and always has been. Um so I don't have very vivid memories of gaming, except perhaps that time that my store got robbed. Have I told that story on the air before? You have neither. Well, you haven't told it to me ever. Really? Yep. So I definitely have to tell this story, but it's like, it's a long story. So if I want to do it right anyway. So I don't know if I'll tell it now, but um, I try to think back. Like I have mentioned before on the show how... You know, when I was a kid, I used to go over to a neighbor's house and play. We would play Castlevania. Like I'd sleep over his house all the time and would play Castlevania. And we would get the same, you know, we'd get to the same place in the game. Maybe we could reach the Grim Reaper on the second to last level. But at very least, we would get to that second to the last level and then die. And, uh, you know, so like that's a, a strong memory I have of playing that particular game. With I, I did that, too. I played Castlevania with my friends when I was a kid a whole bunch of times. And would you get to the same place or would you ever finish the game? Well, I have like two separate memories. Like one of them was actually like I went over to my friend Paul's house, which like who I'm actually friends with still. So I've known him since like second grade. And I just remember like lo- like sitting down and we're playing level two, you know. We didn't get to the same place every time. He was like – what usually ended up happening was like people would watch me play, you know. Mm-hmm. Um because I guess I was just better than them or whatever. Uh, but I also remember, like, with a different friend, um, yeah, I remember that part in Castlevania where you, like, drop down that pit, that really long pit. I mean, I, I don't. Okay. I, I would love to say I did. Yeah. Well, it's really, like, characteristic. <laughs> but um, I think it's, like, level four or five or something like that, a little bit before the Grim Reaper. And, um, yeah, I just remember dying there a millions of times. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I just so that that's the thing. Like we have these stories and sometimes they are quick. Just take a minute. Sometimes they're like my robbery story, which I could tell for like 15 minutes straight if I wanted to. Um and so I I want to get some of these stories and I would love to devote a section of the show. I mean, hell, I'd like to make the entire show just these sorts of stories from people. Um so I I want to invite our listeners, and this is like for really reals. Um, I don't even know how I would accomplish it because of how hectic my life is right now. Um, if people could record 
telling these stories and send us the audio bit. Um, I would love to play them. It'd be great if we could do it interview style over Skype or something. Um, but I want to hear these stories that people have. And it could be anything that is memorable to you, right? It doesn't, doesn't have to be interesting to me necessarily, but hopefully it will be. You know, the first time you played a game or the first time you sat down and showed your friends a, a game that meant something to you. Um, like I remember the very first time I played Super Mario Brothers, right? So I had never seen the Nintendo before. My brother had told me about this thing. You know what? I have the same story after you about that game. Okay, so we had we had played, you know, I'd played Atari 2600 plenty. And my brother has a great story about this too. Um, he decided, you know, he wanted to get into 2600 and my parents wouldn't let him. Um, but, you know... Like he, too adult? No, just like they didn't want video games in the house, which is weird to have a stigma of video games before video games were even a thing. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, but he had saved up his like, paper route or or um you know allowance or whatever he'd saved up his money and he was like trying to explain to my parents what use is it to let me save up money if i can't actually do what i want with it right like what's the value there so eventually yeah. uh over time they finally broke down and let him get it so like he walks across the neighborhood and buys it off the neighbor who's selling his stuff and dismantling the parents will right? with logic yeah so he had <laughs> he had had a lot of you know time um and like spent all of his money on this and uh it's much better when he tells the story because, you know, I was much younger at this point. I was four years younger than him. So he brings it home. And then my parents make him let me play it. And this is of of great personal, like, uh, like, it's a very personal moment for my brother. Like, he's very angry about the fact that, like, he saved up for this. It was his thing. And they said no. And then as soon as... They said, yes, he had to then let me play with it. It's a big deal. And then, of course, as the young kid, I proceed to break it. <laughs> and now this is where it gets even worse. You are such a terrorist. I am, I am. I don't remember how I broke it this the first time. But, th dude, those Ataris were real. I mean, you could break them easily. Because I broke, like, one or two more after that, too. <laughs> are you sure? Because I always thought they were totally indestructible, considering you had to, like apply like 7,000 newtons of pound feet to the joystick to get it to register. Anything. Well, there was but... that, but that's, that's what the joystick was a piece of crap. Um, but anyway, so at some point I broke it and then my parents were like, well, okay. My, I mean, brother's like, you know, he broke it. You guys have to replace it. Right. we got to be. And, uh, and so anyway, they, my mom, like for Hanukkah or something gets us one, which is he's still mad about, right? Because I broke it. It needs to be replaced, not wasting a Hanukkah gift on this thing. Um, so, so anyway, <laughs> oh, but, he's jockeying but, so much. But then when they get this, it's not his anymore. It's for both of us. <laughs> and he holds this grudge to this day. Like he's almost forty. And I remember uh, my wife and I were in in New York, hanging out with him and, and some of his friends just last year. Um, and and he told this story so that my wife could hear it and so that his friends could hear it and like there's a lot of anger <laughs> deep-seated anger in him over this story and uh anyway that's I, I think he's sort of held that with him and it and it's made him angry at my parents his whole life and angry at me <laughs> for like in, encroaching on his territory um yeah well that's yeah totally and he's held on it. his whole life so anyway I was I was trying to talk about Mario. I, I honestly don't have much to say about this, except that in my head, it's a memory of, you know, what's what's ironic is my parents 
went in with a bunch of other parents and got for some kids bar mitzvah like the full nintendo with robbie the robot um like the whole big package which was kind of an expensive thing back then um, yeah, so it got this it kid the bar mitzvah present of that thing and it comes with mario brothers and gyromite and uh it was at that, that kid's place that i played super mario brothers for the very first time and what's what's important for me to note about that experience was not really anything about the game or realizing how great it was, nothing like that. It was just that I was completely terrible at it, like ridiculously bad. Now I was six, but really bad. You know how there's like, you know, the first level starts and you have to move to the right and then like jump on a Koopa or a Goomba. And then there's. Were you not able to move to the I right? I was able to move to the right, but I would just repeatedly get hit by this Goomba, where all you have to do is jump, and then repeatedly fall through the pit that, you know, is like the next thing you come across. And like, I couldn't even get halfway through this level. And I look at it now, and like, when my kid is six and maybe wants to play a game, and I give him Mario Brothers, I don't know, or Super Mario Brothers, I don't know how much patience I'm going to have to watch him walk into the Goomba and walk right into that pit over and over and over it's going to take everything i have to be to keep myself from being like what is wrong with you kid just hit the damn a button it's not that hard (laughs) you know considering the cataclysmic sales of that product it's it seems really queer to me how like so many people must actually have such a shared relationship uh experience of that sort of thing that you're describing oh yeah i bet it's not unique at all but it's you know it's definitely it sticks in my head like i can i can well, picture the bedroom i don't even know if i have the memory correct but i can picture the bedroom and sitting on the end of the bed playing that game and the blues and the greens it's very vivid in my mind which is fun because yeah. not many things are from that long ago well let me tell you about my first experience with super mario brothers and this is actually one of the most vivid memories i've ever had of video games because it was actually one of the first ones. And for some weird reason, the first time I saw Super Mario Brothers was in the arcade. And I'm pretty sure this was almost as much before the NES came out as it could be. What? Wait a minute. No, because the only way you could see Super Mario Brothers in the arcade is on one of the, the NES 10 machines, which was a collection of Nintendo games. It, it may be, so I'm I'm not going to debate the history, but um, I just remember that I was like super young and I definitely didn't have a Nintendo, and this was the first time I saw it. Right. So okay. anyway, regardless of the timing, no, you know what? It did have. I think there was a dedicated Super Mario Brothers. I I have I have a feeling that there might have been around like eighty three or eighty four. Oh man, I got to figure that out. But okay, tell your story. But anyway, um, you know, I was at I was at a mall. It was Montgomery Mall in Potomac, Maryland. And around that time, there was remember Montgomery Ward. Oh yeah, I remember Montgomery Ward. There was a Montgomery Ward, and they have like this little snack area with this little arcade. And my mom was doing shopping or whatever, and I went into this little snack area, and I was just like this little kid, and I was watching this much much taller probably teenager guy play uh, Super Mario Brothers on the arcade. And my experience was limited to watching, let's say, about the first four screens of the first level. 
and I just remembered, um, you know, you know how that first sequence goes, you know how there's that Goomba, and then there's like a series of pipes before you even get to the first hole? Yeah. I just remember, first of all, like, okay, like, you know, there's a pipe, like, he came up to the pipe, and I'm like, whoa, you know, not the first one, the second one, that pipe's really tall, you know? It just stuck out in my mind as being really tall. And then when – so there's this – I think there's this one part. I'm going from memory so I could screw up some of these details. But anyway, so there was like um, that second pit. It's not it's not a bottomless pit, right? But that like valley between the two pipes, you know, there was like one Goomba, right? And that just seemed like the most challenging thing to negotiate to me. And I was just watching. I was like – whoa, that's really hard. You know, you have to, like, fall down and then you have to, like, jump again to get past the thing. And it was, like, it it was just, like, 20 times more challenging looking than I've, like, I see it now as an adult, you know. And he gets, and the guy gets to the second one. And in the second sequence of these, you know, it's that same pit and these two tall pipes on both sides. But in that valley in the middle, you know, now there's two Goombas. And I'm like, whoa, this is even harder. Really ramping up the difficulty there. <laughs> yeah. And it's just I, I don't think I'm capable actually of conveying the sensation of novelty that I experienced watching that. It's like it's like every single like arrangement of tiles that appeared on the screen as it scrolled was like this fantastic and mysterious discovery. See, maybe that's why video games made such an impression on me as a kid. I don't know. See, and it's like I I bet they would have whether or not it was the Mario game that you saw. I mean, had you seen games before that? Like, you know, Missile Command and Space Invaders and all that stuff? You know, I I think that I'd seen some Atari stuff before that, but nothing it was really the it was really the Nintendo. It was the NES generation that made a compelling impact. You know, I had Space Invaders at some point. You know, at home. Yeah. And I wasn't into games when I had that. It was just like a little diversion, just like an average person. Once Nintendo Eight Bit started, woo! It was all over after that. Right. Yeah, I mean it, that was just like a completely. I mean, it was just the, it was not even the same thing. Yeah. You know, what's funny is a lot of my memories of playing games over the years are attached to Mario just because that's, I don't know, I I try to put myself or think about like what my life would be. I I say this now, I, I haven't done this until right now, but while you were talking, I was thinking about like, what does uh, Shigeru Miyamoto think? Like when, when he sees all these YouTube videos of people making like really interesting advanced live action uh, featurettes pretending they're in the Mario universe or, you know, people completely modifying his games to do things that he didn't think of, or, um, you know, it's basically just watching this thing that he made explode, not just from his own brain, but from all these other people, um, who've made it a part of their lives. Um, like that's, I don't want to say that's a big weight. That's like, that's just like a really strong power for for someone to carry around right like that that they've had this big impact on the world and we can look back and see it it is he's been like singularly responsible for 
the hand-eye coordination development of millions of people. Yeah, and and just general joy and nostalgia for like seriously millions, if not like I would I would say that hundreds of millions of people, judging by sales, right? Like hundreds of millions of people have played and enjoyed his games. And like you can it's you can't really do this much anymore, but for people who are around during the beginning, like you can really place that on him. Like he designed Mario. It wasn't really anybody else. Um there were other people involved in the experience, but like it's really his baby. And so you could say Mario is is his. And uh you know, he's had a an effect on a greater number of people than other like not video game related people have had, you know. Um who is who is a significant person in history? Like presidents, you could say? Or the guy who invented sneakers, if that's a a guy, right? A single dude. Um, but like not many people have had that sort of impact on the world. And that's kind of impressive to me. Um, yep. Anyway, we, we've gone a little bit over. So I am going to shut down right about now. But I, I want to ask people sincerely, like if you have stories, even if it's just like 30 seconds or a minute long, if you've got some like memory or story uh, that is even loosely related to games um and you think it might be interesting uh let us know and if you want to record it and send us the file you could do that uh through email Um, if you want to try to tell the story to us while we record in some sort of live setting that's also an option but i'd love to hear people's stories and see if we can make a segment on the show about that something that's not not us talking but you know the people who who like the show and want to tell their own stories because i think that could be a really interesting bit um, and I would, I would love to do that just forever. Um, all right. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, do you have anything else uh, to say before we finish up? You know what I have to say. Expletives. It's good night, guys. There it is. All right. Well, good night, everyone. You've been listening to Chatterbox Video Game Radio. Tune in next week for more tips and info and the latest and greatest in video gaming. And remember, all your base are belong to us.